This is Undisciplined. My name is Claire Scott. And I'm Reagan Edelman. So, Reagan, what do you think of when you think of climate change? Hmm. I mean, first we have rising sea levels. Okay, that's fair, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. Um, let's see. Are you thinking wildfires? Another good guess. Not quite there. Okay, okay. How about those, oh, those sad polar bears that are melting from National Geographic posts that are haunting my feet? The polar bears are melting. They look like they're melting. <laughs> they look like they're melting. They're all skinny and saggy. I mean... It's so sad. That's not what I was looking for, but I'm very upset right now. So maybe we should like move on to what I'm talking about. I could really go on all day. Do you want me to keep going? No, but let me ask you this. Not once did ski resorts cross your mind when thinking about climate change. Um, so strangely enough, Claire, snow peaked mountains is not necessarily the image that first comes to mind when thinking about our rapidly warming planet. Reagan, I don't blame you for that. But what's interesting is that there are researchers at Utah State that have been thinking about this for a while. And there's a study. It came out in 2021, and it's about the impacts, perceptions, and adaptation strategies of Utah ski resorts in response to climate change. You know, like the whole Utah, greatest snow on earth campaign we've all heard to draw on tourists? I've only heard it for my entire life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, according to the study... Climate change is a threat to our resort's claim to fame because, you know, as temperature rises, snowfall decreases, and that can lead to some issues like decrease in snow quality and cover. And with ski resorts being such a key part to Utah recreation, they have to quickly find proactive adaptation strategies. In this study, they examined the temperature change of all Utah resorts from like 1980 to 2018. And these researchers were actually able to determine how serious the effect of climate change is on Utah ski resorts. Right, and the scope of these effects was much larger than initially expected. We talked to one of the authors of this study to learn more about what these findings actually mean. So my name is Jordan Smith, and I am the director of the Institute of Outdoor Recreation and Tourism here at Utah State University. So my question is, how do you even begin a project like this with such a big scope? I mean, covering such a large issue affecting so many different ski resorts in Utah seems like it would take a lot of manpower to execute. Well, this this project really came out of our climate adaptation science program here at Utah State. It's an interdisciplinary program where we really give a lot of ownership to the students, to graduate students who are in the program, to really define what they want to look at over a two-year period. Uh, they define the project, they define the methods, and they define kind of what, where they want to take the research. So this really came out of this group of, of five graduate students that started uh, about three years ago uh, in the Climate Adaptation Science Program, and they had seen a lot of information about the impacts of, of climate change very broadly at global levels, maybe even at regional levels. Um, but one of the, thing, the discussions that came up with a lot of the students was that there's not a lot of really tangible research that ties it to something that's very specific and very close to home. When Jordan says close to home, he means close to home. Utah State University is right in the middle of some of the best Some of the snow, greatest. Greatest snow on earth. Snow on earth. Yeah, exactly. don't think of the campaign. So they chose to do their report on skiing so that they had an excuse to go skiing on this greatest snow. 
it's kind of like how we chose to do this story. And and I don't think there's anything <laughs> wrong with that. I mean, we had to experience this otherworldly snow to be able to talk about it. But what does that mean? To have the greatest snow? We hear a lot about how powdery or how fresh it is, but how do we tell if the quality of snow is good? Well, I mean, as a skier, I can definitely tell you when I'm skiing on snow that I like, and I can definitely tell you when I'm skiing on snow that I don't. But as for the why that actually is, I could not tell you. That's what Patrick Belmont is for. You know, when we're out there on the slopes, what we want to see is some really nice, fluffy, light powder snow. Um, from a math perspective, <laughs> we're just looking at the density of the snow. So the weight of the snow relative to the, the volume of the snow. Patrick is a seasoned skier, and he worked on the study alongside Jordan. I'm Patrick Belmont. I'm a hydrologist and geomorphologist, which means I study all kinds of things with water, uh, rivers, climate change, things like that. Snow quality is about density and we want it light. Yes, but the snow is getting denser and denser. One of the reasons the snow is getting denser is because of lack of precipitation we're seeing. Patrick was saying that the low levels of Utah's lakes actually play a role in snow density. Winds are coming through and they're picking up a lot of dust from you know, the shoreline of, of the Great Salt Lake that should be submerged, but it's not because it's so low. And that dust blows up onto the snow and it darkens it a little bit. And so then it absorbs a lot more of the incoming radiation from the sun and heats up and it melts the snow. And it also decreases the quality of the snow more quickly. So that dust is actually a really big problem for uh, high quality snow. It's kind of like coating it in grossness and making it melt a lot faster. <laughs> but the thing is, quality aside, we need snow. We need snow to even make snow. There were 14 ski resorts in Utah, and the study involved all of them. I think it was 12 that currently make their own snow in order to just get their slopes running at the beginning of the season. Okay, so in order to get the slopes running, they have to make snow. But in order to make that snow, they have to what? Get enough snow in the first place? How, do, how does that even work? It's really confusing, honestly. The key to remember is temperature. The goal temperature is negative 5 degrees Celsius, and because of rising temperatures, this goal isn't being met until way later in the season. Well, that's really what a ski resort depends on to guarantee that they can have at least one, maybe a few runs open at the beginning of the year. So if they can consistently make snow like 80% of the time, 90% of the time early on in the ski season or early on in that pre-season period, um, this is likely that they can consistently make snow day after day after day, and as a result, put down the adequate base to make sure that they can make, make their opening day targets or their opening day deadlines. Compared to like previous seasons from like, you know, I'd say maybe like four, three or four years ago is when there's like a the last like good season I can remember. And then since then, it's just been like less frequent of snowfall and just the snow doesn't stay as long. It falls later in the season. This is Margaret Brown and she's a ski instructor at the Park City Mountain. She's had years of experience on Utah slopes as a recreational skier. We talked to Margaret kind of wondering what she's seen on the slopes. And we came to the realization that 
There is reason to fear for Utah Ski Resort's future, but there's also reasons to fear for Utah Ski Resort's present. Yeah, so I I think it is concerning just, like, the dryness that we have had with our seasons and everything. And, like, the lack of snowfall goes into our summers, you know, and we'll have those droughts in the summer as well. And I think it, it does um, affect business. Like, you can see, like, on days that are, or weeks that we haven't had, like, a good storm in a while, uh, classes slow down, parents aren't putting their kids in classes. Mm-hmm. When it's snowing and when there are big storms, like, you'll notice, like, the couple days after those big storms, people will have their kids in classes a lot more often. And that's really what it comes down to. If there's not enough business, it really doesn't matter if the snow is technically still skiable or not. So, some way, somehow, these resorts just need to change things to make up for the negative impact that the science is having on the business end of things. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to something that's really cool about this study. Instead of just looking at historical weather data, climate change projections, that kind of thing, they also talked personally to resort managers. Well, I think that's really one of the most novel things about this study is that you know there's a lot of research that has been done across the world on the impacts of climate change on uh, ski resort operations, about the viability of making snow in the winter, the the length of the ski season in many different ge- geographic locations uh, across the globe. Um, one thing that's often missing from those studies is the personal perceptions of either skiers or snowboarders or the skiers or operators. And this added a whole new level to the entire discussion. Involving management creates a lot of insight and it creates answers to what those directly involved see within their industry. Right, and it adds insights to whether or not they've actually noticed the changes that are happening and if they're beginning to try and find solutions for it. Which they are. The ski resorts in the industry are constantly adapting and looking for new ways to keep the activity at the resorts alive and business booming. Uh, But what we really found from this study is that the ski resort industry has been kind of at the forefront uh, of climate change. And they've they've known that these impacts have been happening for for quite a while. And as a result, they've they've started to change their operations and even push some some key policy through at at the national level here in the U.S. Uh, to better allow them to expand their resort operations into activities beyond just skiing and snowboarding. So I've gone to a lot of ski resorts in my days. Let's hear about it. But, but Powder Mountain, it's, it's my place. And one of my favorite aspects of the mountain are actually the concerts. They have concerts there? Yeah, so they've got this little place called the Powder Keg. And they're known for their ramen, which... <gasps> I love ramen. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal ramen. But they also have like their signature powder keg wings and beer on tap and people go absolutely feral for it. All right. So we have beer, wings, oh, yeah. ramen, concerts. You're really excited about the beer and wings. <laughs> it's like it's like a win-win. It's just one of the best post-ski activities. You sit with humans in a warm room after you're all, all tired and you get to eat good food and enjoy the company of your peers. The vibes are immaculate. It sounds awesome. It's and that's so good. just powder, you know. Mm-hmm. Most of the resorts are widening their activity range to involve things other than snow sports. I had a friend have a wedding reception at Snow Basin Resort just a couple months ago. They also have other sport possibilities, such as mountain biking. I've heard that the mountain biking at both Powder and Snow Basin, actually, and I'm sure other resorts, is supposedly unmatched. The team behind this study heard about quite a few different strategies that were being implemented as countermeasures. They're starting to think about uh, developing mountain bike trails, developing hiking trails, nature watching opportunities, 
uh, hosting events at their resorts. Um, if you've been to any of the major ski resorts in, in Utah, they have events, like concerts, Oktoberfest, they have mountain bike races, they have road bike races. Uh, to really diversify the types of recreational opportunities and the number of visitors that they can draw throughout the year as opposed to just one season. So we describe this in the paper as them being transitioning from a, a one-season industry or a one-season destination to a four-season destination. Concerts and mountain biking and all of these new activities that resorts are adopting are great, and they will definitely take the edge off the lack of snowfall we're seeing. But throughout these discussions with resort managers about adaptations, there was one that trumped all others in terms of success, and that's snowmaking. Right, and we've touched a little bit on this topic, but let's get into it. This could be the saving grace for these ski resorts. Yeah, we specifically asked them about what types of adaptation measures they were putting, they had in place, either already or that they were planning on putting in place. And by and large, the most common adaptation option that most ski resorts have within the state is making snow. So if you're a skier or a snowboarder, you know that beginning about mid-November, kind of typically, once the temperatures get low enough, most of the ski resorts... 12 out of the 14 ski resorts, or excuse me, 11 out of the the 14 ski resorts within the state actually make their own snow. What they basically have big snow guns that draw water out of either reservoirs or or aquifers that then basically spray this, the water across the runs, uh, lay down the base coverage that's required. And then once you start to get enough natural snow, you have enough of a depth to actually offer skiing uh, throughout the winter. So basically when you're making snow, the water is going through this snow cannon of sorts alongside a bunch of pressurized air and it is forced to compress. So then when the snow is made and the ground is covered, it's able to stick on the top of the already snowy ground. So basically you need the cold temperatures and the machines. Yes, and lots of water. So at Snow Basin, for example, they pull a majority of their snowmaking water from a single reservoir. And I'm pretty sure it was built in 2015 for this sole purpose. Back in 1980, most of the resorts in Utah were able to make snow in that early season period for about 80% of the days. And now they're only able to make snow about 60% of the days. Um, and then, like, like I said, if we look at that trend uh, and extrapolate it out over the rest of the century, by the end of the century, we're looking at trends where ski resorts are only be, possibly able to make snow uh, maybe 10 to 20 percent of the time, which obviously isn't, isn't enough if you need to lay down a significant base to actually provide the adequate coverage to open a few runs. Snowmaking isn't exactly the saving grace we want it to be. Well, I mean, for the time being, it's doing a decent job. But you're right, it's looking to be more of just a short-term solution. Uh, so it looks like, from the, from the data that we, that we had collected, that uh, snowmaking is most certainly uh, becoming less and less of a viable option. And towards the middle to end of the century, will probably not even be uh, viable. Um, unless there's very significant or radical changes in, in snowmaking capabilities. So middle or end of the century, that's that's soon. You're talking like 2050 to 2100, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, yeah, 30, 30, to, 30, 30 to 60 years now. And I think that that might sound like a, a long ways off for maybe a lot of listeners. But if you look back and you're like, 2000, 2000 seems like it might be just yesterday, or maybe it does for me. I'm a little bit older, but uh, you know that was 20 years ago. But if you, you consider well, 20 years from now, uh, in 2040, 2041, a lot of these resorts will only be able to make snow maybe half of the days. So when do we start running and screaming? How do I put this? I have been running and screaming since the day I was born. <laughs> so I'm one step ahead of you. Parking lots filtering out. It's it's pretty pretty slow now. Yeah. It's crazy to me how the parking lot's just pure ice. No, seriously. I think I think that says a thing or two about there, the snow quality. I do not <laughs> Talking with Jordan about how this could affect customers at these resorts made us want to talk to them ourselves and see what their thoughts were on the subject. Right. Like, have they noticed the change in snow quality? And are they as worried about the future of ski seasons as we are? So these questions took us to Snow Basin Resort in early January, where we caught visitors just around close after a long day on the mountain. For some context, winter up to this point has been in a state of absolute anarchy. Snowstorms began, what, as early as October? Which was genuinely confusing for everyone, but then we didn't get a drop for all of November. It was atrocious, and the lack of snowfall was a bit alarming, but then December blessed us with a few storms. Here and there. And January wasn't as promising, but that apparently didn't stop people from getting out there and enjoying some of the leftover powder. First question is just how was the snow today? How was the skiing? You know, I'll tell you, it was pretty good. It wasn't a powder day. It was a little packed, but it was a little, a little chossy kind of powder on top. It was nice. Good groomers. It was awesome today, actually. I think it was just warm enough that most of it was soft. Can you tell me a little bit about the snow today? How was skiing? Uh, it was icy. Icy? Very icy. <laughs> it is. It's. You can tell that last night it was. It probably got really heavy, wet snow, and then it got cold enough to. To freeze and so it's very crusty very even when it looks like fresh powder it'll be it'll have a crust layer on top which is very hard to ski on and screws people up have you noticed any difference in the snow over the years or is it yes it's much less this is like March weather uh, no I feel like the season had a little bit slower of a start than last year but uh, I think it's caught up now I think we got a good base going I feel like this season's gonna go long so snow's pretty I mean, first time a couple weeks ago, it was like so powdery, powdery, but now it's kind of icy, but it's still really good. Like, I'm getting the hang of it. Uh, I mean, last year was obviously not uh, great. lacking. <laughs> so, um, um, have you noticed the past couple years a deterioration in like snow quality? I have. Yeah. This is Jordan Hansen. Another Jordan? I know, right? He was great, wasn't he? I loved him. Just so one of cool. those skiers that blows your mind with their dedication just weeks spent out on the slopes i i respect him so much he's also skied in utah since he was just a little kid so he has years and years of experience with this snow have you ever had issues with like season like the season opening later or like there just be not enough snow absolutely like that? yeah why do you think that is i i would say changing weather patterns absolutely it's warmer like we were talking earlier, a, a typical storm these days, it'll be cold enough to snow in Utah, you know, 20-ish degrees or below. A storm front will push in and it will bring warmer air with it. And it pushes it past it, so it's raining at our house, which is at about 5,000 feet. 
So that is very different. That's a changing thing. I never saw that growing up. It's 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 different. Yeah, it's deteriorating. So for really a resort easily. like Snow Basin, if like you're a beginner, what are you left with? You don't have a whole lot of options. If grooming, grooming is kind of the savior of that. Yeah. So if things were to get worse and like the snow quality was constantly really bad, especially in Utah, do you think you would continue to buy a season pass? I think it would probably eventually get to a point where I would not. Yeah. And we'd, we'd worry more about just hiking up to spots where there's better snow and just put our effort into that, save some money too. So it's something I, I as a, I would say definitely avid skier, yearly season pass, well, you know, 25 plus years at Snow Basin, it's... It will. It could come to a point where it's not worth it. Yeah, which is super sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really easy for talk about climate change to feel overwhelming, but these measures that resorts are taking to adapt will genuinely come in handy. It's easy for this enormous problem to feel totally unmanageable and like none of us has a role to play in it. So, what can individuals do? The number one thing that we can do about this is just talk about it. We've got to normalize talking about climate change and talking about the world we want to live in that has a lot less pollution in it and a lot less fossil fuel use in it. And we have to normalize talking about that among ourselves. My name is Brett Hauser. I'm the town manager for Brian Hood, Utah. The future of Utah's ski economy affects the entire state. This influence is exceptionally evident in the town of Brian Head, Utah, population 150. Brian Head is a is a ski ski resort town first and foremost, meaning unlike most other resort towns, we were nothing before we had a ski resort. Brian Head I would say is almost entirely shaped by the ski resort industry and, and the ski resort that, that exists there. I, I think there were a few cabins in town that, that predated the, the resort, uh, but not much. Really, it was in the 1960s. This, this ski resort uh, started operations up there. And prior to that, there, was, there wasn't much other than I think some people ran some sheep up there. And I'd heard the occasional sawmill sort of operation and things like that. Wow, that really makes me wonder what Brian Head would even be like if there wasn't a ski resort there. Like, the results of this study must be especially upsetting considering how much they rely on the resort in comparison to other resort cities. I know, and that's what I asked him. You know, if the worst were to happen and Brian Head had to close indefinitely, what's the future for a town like this? What would that mean for the residents that have to deal with that fear? I'm going to wax just a little bit philosophical here. I think, I think we're fairly resilient, maybe as a species, you know, <laughs> and, to, and to where, look, we just deal with the realities that we're presented with. And, and sometimes we're presented with reality in a fairly stark fashion. Like, and so we make our adjustments and we, and we're now we're better prepared for the next time. And as far as like how climate change is going to affect us, just to answer the, you know, take a crack at the broader question, like what I see is I see people just dealing with the reality that's in front of them the best that they can. And, and it may be that someday, uh, you know, kind of a reality we don't really want to think about is it may be that someday the ski industry is not a factor in, in Brian Head, you know, and, um, and I'm just not sure that there's anything that the 150 people living in Brianhead can do to reverse climate change all by our onesies, you know, like we, we can't do that. And so, 
And so we just kind of deal with it. And if it, and if a hundred years, there's no snow in Brian head. I mean, obviously that's a much bigger, broader problem worldwide, but I think locally it's like, okay, well, that means we got a hundred years to, to figure out how to adjust and find something else to do. I mean, that's, that sounds a little pessimistic or whatever, or maybe, maybe not ideal enough, you know, like, like not idealistic enough where, where it's like, Oh, you know, that's a problem for us. So we're going to stop climate change. Well, we're not going to stop climate change. Like we in Brian head are not going to stop climate change. So we're just going to have to roll with it, you know, and, and, and maybe that means no snow or maybe it doesn't, I don't know, but we'll, we'll, we'll just have to adjust. Special thanks to Jordan Smith and Patrick Belmont for talking with us about their study. Jordan is the director of the Institute of Outdoor Recreation and Tourism at Utah State University. His work uses social media analytics and geospatial technologies to develop an understanding of how outdoor recreation is changing across the American West. Patrick Belmont is a hydrologist and geomorphologist. His research has advanced understanding of how landscapes and rivers change over time and the implications for water quantity and quality, flood risk, water resource management, and ecosystem health. Their work with the Climate Adaptation Science Program at USU was published in the BioOne Journal. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts from. Our producer is Claire Scott, our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud, and I'm Reagan Edelman. Thanks for listening, now go have big ideas.